And now on WRS, Michael McKay with the McKay interview. Hello, everyone. Today I'm in Geneva again. It's good sense not to travel too far from home these days and probably more socially responsible as well because the second wave of COVID-19 seems to be on us here. And today, not for the first time, I've chosen a topic for my conversation, my interview, where I'm intellectually well in over my head again. And yes, not for the first time. I can sense some of you chuckling at me under your breath. But it's an important topic and one that I want to learn more about and one where Geneva marks it, makes its mark internationally. Again, I'm referring to artificial intelligence and the world of intellectual power, complexity of the issues involved and the potential for future, and I mean near future development, let alone looking a generation or two ahead. My guest today is Professor Jovan Kubalia. Some of you listening will know him. He's prominent in many important circles in Geneva, in Switzerland, and internationally. He's the founding director of Diplo Foundation and the head of the Geneva Internet Platform. Professor Kubali is a former diplomat and has a professional and academic background in international law, diplomacy, and information technology. He's been a pioneer in the field of cyber diplomacy since 1992, it's almost 30 years, when he established the Unit for Information Technology and Diplomacy at the Mediterranean Academy of Diplomatic Studies in Malta. And just so you know a little bit more about him, he was a member of the United Nations Working Group on Internet Governance, Special Advisor to the Chairman of the UN Internet Governance Forum, and a member of the High-Level Multi-Stakeholder Committee for Net Monidal. And apart from his day job in Geneva, as head of Diplo Foundation and the Geneva Internet Platform, we are, by the way, recording this in the elegant World Meteorological Organization building, that blue, narrow building near the lake, next door to the beautiful Jardin Botanique, and we're going to come back to that later. He lectures on e-diplomacy and internet governance in academic and training institutions in many countries, including in Austria, the Diplomatic Academy of Vienna, Belgium, the College of Europe, in Switzerland, the University of St. Gallen, and in Malta, the University of Malta, and in the United States, the University of Southern California. Hello, Professor Kabalia. Welcome to the McKay interview, and thanks for making time to talk to me and our listeners. Hello, Michael. It's great to be today um, uh, here with uh, your listeners and with you. I follow uh, carefully your interviews, and they're always inspiring. And I'm wondering if I'm going to be up to the level that you established with this series. That's very kind of you, uh, Jovan. And they say flattery will get you anywhere. Well done, Jovan. Can we talk meaningfully about such a big subject in only half an hour? It's worth a try, and I'm keen to learn. Let me start with a big yet simple question. What is artificial intelligence today? Today, And I know that the phrase was first coined back in 1956 by John McCarthy at Dartmouth College in the United States, but much has happened since 1956. Has the definition changed with the growth of knowledge? Michael, it is about mimicking uh, human intelligence. Uh, it is the shortest definition. Therefore, it is uh, the way how it is perceived today. Now, artificial intelligence uh, has been attracting a lot of imaginations, a lot of uh, misconceptions and uh, different ideas. But I would organize thinking about artificial intelligence in two phases uh, since the uh, 50s when the term was coined. One phase, uh, which I call it early Wittgenstein, Ludwig Wittgenstein, which is a famous uh, Austrian philosopher, and the late Wittgenstein. And I will explain now what it is about. For a long time, 
artificial intelligence researchers were thinking of mimicking uh, uh, basically human logic. It means that if Michael has to come to Geneva to do interview with me, he has to take car or train or bus to take precautionary measures. Therefore, there was an idea that you can mimic human intelligence as algorithm as step by step, if yes, if not. Why it is called the early Wittgenstein? Ludwig Wittgenstein went to study mathematical science with Bertrand Russell at, at the Cambridge. And at that time, mathematical philosophy and logic was very popular. And it was that early Wittgenstein idea to mimic the, the logic. So for those not familiar with Bertrand Russell, Wittgenstein, pinpoint more or less the date. When are we talking about, roughly speaking? We're, we're 20s, 30s. In the 20s and 30s, uh, yeah. okay. Now, Wittgenstein uh, realized early enough that there are limits in that. Then he went back to Austria. He was the village teacher. And he developed the later theory, which abandoned this logical explanation and say, what we can do, especially through language, we can do probabilities. We can do guessing what would be human reaction, which train uh, Michael will take based on the previous patterns applying to, you, to what you did this morning. What's happened with artificial intelligence since 56 till today, for a long time, it was trying to mimic the logic of, uh, of the algorithmic logic. It was abandoned about 15 years ago with a shift towards late Wittgenstein or probabilities. Therefore, current artificial intelligence does not presume to mimic every step, but it will give probability that according to data, most likely, Michael will take a train from, the, from his home or take bus, or he will, uh, he will walk certain ways uh, in Geneva. Therefore, this is this big shift from the idea to completely logically descri describe our uh, reality towards probability. And so is there a broad definition that specialists like you agree on and that ordinary men and women like me can understand and use for, as a basis for better understanding? Well, artificial intelligence today is attempt to mimic uh, human intelligence through the use of um, uh, probabilities uh, in daily life. So that's where we are today. Yeah. So now, I know, just to move on a little bit, I know that you're very prominent in this area. So please tell me, what is humanism, if I pronounced it properly, the project, and why does it exist? The humanism. Humanism, that's a We project. put okay. AI just yeah. for your listeners yeah. uh, in the middle of the yeah. humanism. What, what, is, what is that? It is anchoring AI in humanism, mm. in humanity. Because the key question uh, currently is if artificial intelligence is going to encapsulate uh, humanity and some core tenets of, the, uh, of the, our civilization, including freedom of choice, centrality of human, uh, human uh, agency and decision-making, question of human dignity. Because what we are living currently is tension between two pillars of enlightenment. One is modernity, science, efficiency, doing more, doing better. And the other one is uh, humanism, centrality of uh, humans in the, in, the, in the running of the modern world. Currently, there is a risk that modernity and efficiency can basically reduce our space for choices. Therefore, what we did, we anchored the AI in the center of the humanism, overcoming naive uh, and sometimes risky uh, binary logic 
for AI or against AI. We said, yes, we are for AI. It can help us, but it has to be anchored into the core values of the humanism. So you've talked already about uh, philosophers like Wittgenstein and, and Bertrand Russell. I know that ethics is an important part and obviously human behavior is very important. They feature very high on your list of discussion and research projects, but what worries you? Uh, thinking people like you in particular about the current situation on AI. You mentioned the word tensions. What worries you at present about that? We'll talk about what excites you in a minute. What worries me is the quote that was made by the famous writer Hemingway. When they asked him how he got bankrupt back in Cuba, you know, he had some business, he, he went bankrupt, he answered in two ways, gradually and suddenly. <laughs> really, I didn't know that, that now, quotation. What so really, explain why, explain uh, what why that's important. What really worries me is that as we are now discussing, as uh, humanity is discussing, our uh, reality is changing very fast with use of AI. And there is a risk that uh, that automation or that shift of human intelligence can come too, uh, can come too far to be, to be any more put into the service of, uh, of humanity. And this is a huge risk that we are facing now. Instead of endless discussion on ethics, which, which is important, we have really to have serious discussion involving tech companies, politicians, academia, citizens, about this interplay between machines, between modernity, between efficiency, and our core values of humanity. And Geneva is one of the best places where this serious discussion can happen. Among other things, this is the place where uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, where he was born and he wrote, as you know, social contract. And what we need now, more than ever before, is basically social contract, answering some of these key issues. So your eyes light up, as you mentioned Rousseau, and you smile at me across the microphone. What excites you and stimulates you about artificial intelligence? And what is it that makes you want to devote your professional life to it? Well, uh, I'm always excited about tools. There is uh, some sort of a gadget person or homo ludus in, uh, in, in me who is basically uh, exciting by tools, you know. I'm, well, in 10 years I will be retired, but I, I think I will continue uh, being uh, uh, amazed by so this. So you're, you're a gadget man. I'm a gadget man, <laughs> yes. This is what brought me in, the, in this. But what really excites me here is, is a, a sort of a, a responsibility to open this gadget space, innovation space, for many people that will come, while also taking care of the core uh, tenants or core values of humanity, sort of to be, to in Zoroastrian way, to keep the fire, which we got from previous generations, fire, uh, fire of creativity, innovation, to pass it to the next generation. I think this is the function of all of us as individuals, as, in, as a generation. Therefore, I like to play with AI, with these tools, well, to play, I, it's part of my work, they, they to, but also to understand it and to say, hey, here are the bottom lines. We cannot go over, over this or here are the risks. Fred, obviously, before I came to sit in front of you, Yvan, I've been trying to read up so as to at least not to sound too stupid in front of you, but I've read that you want to ensure that AI is used for the common good, very laudable. But I ask you this question, have we, humankind, learn the fundamental lessons of history. Science deployed by bad people displaying reprehensible behavior dates back, I read, to the Hittites, 
nearly 2,000 years before Christ, who used rudimentary forms of biological weapons. I was surprised to read that. Maybe even before the Hittites, but at least there's a recorded history of the Hittites. Moreover, we're sitting less than half an hour's drive from the Villa Diodati, where Mary Shelley created and wrote Frankenstein, more than a science myth, even in 1819. The story is still popular today, but didn't she in a way write about artificial intelligence? And though I'm mixing things up a bit here, just for the sake of in a way, the dramatic benefit of making the interview interesting, anthrax, gas, chemical warfare, smallpox, gunpowder, nuclear fusion, thermonuclear weapons. It's just a very short list, and I could add more. Can humankind really be trusted? Yes, in brief, but also uh, in the famous saying, trusted by verified. And I, you mentioned Mary Shelley, who is, uh, as a uh, relevant today as it was two centuries ago. Why is she relevant today, in your opinion? Because she pointed to that uh, drive, which I already explained, of Dr. Frankenstein to create something new, to use a science, uh, good intentions. And many uh, specialists in the field of AI have, a, have a good intentions. They are excited about uh, possibilities. They're excited about, uh, about uh, mathematical challenges, like Dr. Frankenstein was. And if you can recall, creature that he created was also good. The creature wanted to be loved, but it was different from us humans, and it triggered negative reaction. Then creature ultimately reacted as narratives uh, goes, reacted in the way how it reacted, started killing using its power, and ultimately the victim was also Dr. Frankenstein. This is so telling story that many universities in the United States are now including it as a compulsory reading for the students of artificial intelligence and engineering. So this is in sciences and engineering, not in humanities, but in science and engineering. Science and engineering, not literature. Okay, yeah, we, we, sure. we read it. For Mary Shelley's story was was uh, was really it's it's it, it, that message that she basically sent through that the story uh, resonate not only uh, in the context specific context on the when she wrote, but uh, it resonates uh, with the core tenets of humanity, of dr our drive to innovate, to discover, and the uh, risk that our uh, innovation can create for humanity and for even personally ourselves, as it happened with Dr. Witt, uh, Dr. Uh, Frankenstein. Let's just talk about some practical, practical things uh, for a moment. Does your project have particular targets in mind? I mean, are you essentially politicians, business people, young people? I mean, I know you teach young people, students. I don't know if you teach in school as well from time to time, but all your students are 18 to 25. But in terms of the projects that you're involved with, who are you really focusing on? And uh, what impact is that focus having? So just give me some examples, please. This is the key aim of the project is to increase the level of discussion on artificial intelligence and digital changes. Unfortunately, currently, this discussion is covered with the many, many layers of misconception, misunderstanding, uh, lost in translation between technical people and the politicians. Therefore, one of our main aims is to remove those layers and to come to the discussion which ultimately will answer the question. So you think it's a communication problem or is it a, an organizational problem or is it a mix of lots of things? A mix, but communication <clears throat> is one of the major problems. I'll give you one statistics. Uh, recently, last year, 
43% uh, of companies registered the startup in the, United, in the United Kingdom that had AI in its title of description didn't do anything with AI. So nearly half. Nearly half. Nearly half yeah. I won't speak about blockchain as a previous hype, uh, hype uh, sort of uh, uh, wave. We have, like with the, uh, with the corona, we have waves. Um, uh, you remember three years ago, blockchain was solution for all problems of humanity. Mm. Basically, it, it, it was supposed to automate trust. It was the flavor of the month, as we say. Yeah. yeah. That, that, and it's, it's not that bad to have some utopia. Utopia is, is useful to increase people's imagination, you know. But the problem is when it starts affecting political processes, when you tell people that you can automate trust, for example, with blockchain, which is, frankly speaking, nonsense. Trust is so deeply human relation, you can support it. Nowadays, you, you, you rarely hear on the, about the blockchain uh, and this thing. Therefore, that's a, that's a huge risk. That new wave of uh, hype uh, uh, attracts the attention, uh, shape decisions, and you realize that down the line that uh, it is not uh, as uh, promising as it is. Therefore, what we're trying with AI, which will be longer than blockchain, I wouldn't make this parallel, we're trying to say, hey, how does the AI functions? What does it mean, neural networks? Can you ask for transparency in neural networks? We as uh, citizens, we may have a referendum in Switzerland say we want transparency of neural networks. But neural networks, by the way how they are defined, neural networks are the key of the current AI systems, it's very difficult to, to, to have them uh, transparent in the sense that you do not know how they will connect different pieces of information. Therefore, we have to have very informed discussion what it is all about, what are the public policy interests, what are the ethical concerns. And on that point, politicians, leaders of countries, civil society activists should engage in discussion, not necessarily about technology, but having sufficient understanding of technology to address public policy issues. And this as, is our mandate. As we're talking about communication, Yvonne, um, as we're warming up for this interview, you mentioned uh, the fact that in some of your classes, you take your young students across to the Jardin Botanique. Could you explain a little bit about why? What, what do you find when you go over there? Why do you take your young students into the garden? Well, you uh, we just look uh, across, across our street. Uh, you First, you see lovely lovely botanical garden, one of the oldest in Europe, beautifully maintained. But what matters even more, it is the place of uh, returning to nature and wisdom of nature. And today, when we discuss future of AI, we have to consult not only our rational written history, since Hammurabi or Hittite or others, but also how nature managed to optimize its survival and sustainability. And this park is full of lessons. For example, for example, yes, totally. Uh, you have uh, uh, <clears throat> trees. When you see the trees, the way how the uh, the leaves are distributed are in the op optimal way. So it's so-called phyllotaxis concept discovered by uh, Charles Bonnet in Jardin Botanique. In that garden. In that garden. How many years ago was that? I think it's, it's something 100, 180, uh, 108, but I can give you exact. Yeah. Uh, he was basically inspired by another Swiss mat mat uh, mathematician, Jacques Bernoulli, who developed concept of, uh, in his book, Wonderful Spirals, he developed concept of logarithmic spirals. But bottom line is, 
there is a lot of intelligence, natural algorithmic intelligence in the nature, from the way how leaves are distributed to get maximum exposure to the sun. The logic is very simple. In order to survive, you need uh, more sun. And the leaves are distributed according to this, uh, this uh, logarithmic spiral or Fibonacci, Fibonacci numbers of, of famous Italian scientists. Therefore, when you go there, you basically uh, have to be humble because you realize that nature has been fixing these things for, uh, for a time immemorial. And we should consult uh, nature more. This is what Corbusier did, another famous Swiss. He basically used this is the architect. architect. Yeah. He used the golden ratio. This is basically one of the principles in the nature to inspire his architecture. This is why we enjoy his, uh, his uh, buildings, uh, because they are simply uh, pleasant according to some principles that we got from nature. Bottom line is, I try to inspire my students to think about nature when they discuss artificial intelligence, data, digital, and, uh, and similar issues. So as, to put it in layman's English, it's hidden in plain sight. Yes. Yeah, right under our noses, so to speak. My guest today is Professor Jovan Kubalia of the Diplo Foundation and the Geneva Internet Platform, and we're in Geneva. Jovan, privacy and governance. These are important topics for all of us. And to just look at the debate in many countries about tracking and tracing COVID-19 infected people. It's happening right now. But kis codiet ipsos codes my bad Latin, the Roman poet Juvenal in the first, second centuries AD recognized the problem 2,000 years ago. Who guards the guardians? We've been thinking and discussing some of these fundamental human issues for a long time. Are we any nearer finding conclusive answers to the question, who guards the guardians? Well, the same question was asked yesterday by the American politician Tom Cruise in a hearing with the heads of three big companies. And he asked the president of uh, Twitter, who, for God's sake, elected you? The context was the decision of the Twitter and Facebook basically to censor one text public, published by New York Post. And, uh, Is it New York Post or New York Times? New York Post. New York Post. New York Post. Okay. Uh, and then uh, basically these people ask, <laughs> call the hearing and say, who... Uh, who are you? Who, yes. who, how you can, uh, uh, in, in the case of the United States, uh, basically endanger First Amendment? But apart from the, that context, especially this pre-election context, the ultimate question is, can governments, and in very well-organized societies like Switzerland, for example, can governments deliver on their social contract? And social contract is very simple. We as a citizens, we pass the right through elections, to parliament, to politicians, to run society, to prevent anarchy, to ensure security, to ensure a well-functioning market, protection of the human rights. What is happening currently, Michael, if this interview is blocked by YouTube, or if it is blocked by, uh, by um, if you are attacked uh, in, uh, under cyber attack, you, cannot easily find the redress in probably the best organized governments and society in the world, one of the best, like Switzerland. You can call Swiss police, but they cannot help you easily because decision is among those unelected guys, most of them sitting in, in Silicon Valley, but not only in Silicon Valley. 
So the answer to your own question is probably about governments is not yet. Not, governments aren't in a position yet no, to they, deliver. They don't have a means to yeah. deliver on, on deliver to the citizens yeah. on the protecting of security. Security is a bit better. Cyber security is increasing. But let's say if uh, you start your, uh, your business with this podcast and interviews and somebody at the YouTube decides because of some of your podcasts that it should be, should, should be banned, your uh, fortune, your business uh, is just in the hand of... Uh, in the hands of those few people. Few people. Okay. As we're, we're in America, we're talking about the New York Post and we're talking about the United States. Is there a UN view of artificial intelligence? Well, I mean, when one looks at the 15 members of the current Security Council, they appear to be quite a mixed bag of political philosophies, to put it diplomatically. Does that affect the work of your organization in any way? And in, in what way does it affect your work on the UN's view of AI? Well, I'm, I'm not anymore with the UN. I yes, was with the UN really. high-level panel. But back to your question, is there the view? Uh, no, there is no common, a common view. There is a process uh, initiated by UN Secretary General through the UN high-level panel on digital cooperation and current roadmap, basically asking countries, citizens, and companies to start providing building blocks for that social contract. Social contract not necessarily to be signed on dotted lines, but in basic understanding what we understand as AI and digital development, how far we can tolerate some of those developments, and how we deal with the risk for humanity. This process is now under the way. There are intensive consultations. And uh, there is at least good intention. Is it going to be successful? Uh, it's very difficult to say because UN is about the member states. And member states, as you know, shifted to the my country first position. And AI is increasingly considered as being a, a sort of a strategic tool or sometimes strategic weapon. Let's come back home before we finish. Why Geneva? Why are you, why is your organization here? Well, you know how it is in life. There is a bit of a coincidence, uh, but I think there are real reasons. I, uh, I moved from Malta, where I established the Diplo Foundation uh, in uh, 2002, to Geneva. But Geneva is uh, probably the best place to negotiate this interplay between humanity and technology. It is a place where technology meets humanity throughout the history. And if you really dig behind the ICRC, International Red Cross, International Telecommunication Union, labor organization, most of organization based in Geneva, you will always see that they were triggered by technological developments, Red Cross with the killing machines, and the way how humanity can basically uh, put this technology in the service of humanity. And it is partially, partially influenced by also uh, cultural and religious tradition in, uh, in uh, Geneva to push for efficiency, for business, for development ideas, but also to bring the consideration of humanity and the social stability. So in that respect, there are lots of good, solid reasons for being in There in are a lot of solid... Yeah. Uh, this is a place where... where yeah. Because if you, if you discuss it in Silicon Valley, uh, their mantra is just uh, the, the let's move on, let's move on, and ask later on what will be the impact. Here... There is a sense of innovation and efficiency and the need to develop, but there's also a nice measure, balance. Yeah, Trade-off, trade because the key word for current era, from dealing with COVID to AI, is to establish reasonable trade-offs. Last question. 
you know, what's, what's current? What are, you, what are you busy doing now? And what's next on your agenda? Well, uh, currently we are focusing on three communities which we think will be the crucial communities for the future of digital world. Parliamentarians, people who have to adopt new laws. Worldwide. Worldwide. Religious and faith communities, because they are now increasingly asked, answering the question of ethics, human identity, what defines us uh, as a humans. Therefore, religious communities are increasingly involved. And gamers. Gamers are a very powerful community. Gamers are shaping the way how future the next generations will think. Just in simple language, tell us what a gamer is, in case people listening are not sure what you mean. Uh, gamers are people who pro produce online games and who play the game. Ah, I see, because I'm, I'm sort of an yeah. old-fashioned guy. I understand what you well, mean. We are probably it's not gambling, not gambling. No, 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 no. We are, well, <laughs> there are sometimes, uh, but it's, it's not, it's not, it's, uh, we are from, uh, I'm at least from the generation of Tetris and uh, these old games, but this is a really powerful community. Therefore, three communities, parliamentarians, faith religious communities and gamers. We are trying to engage them in discussion because they are going to shape the world. On the topics, we have, uh, we have uh, the three topics in Geneva in our focus. Artificial intelligence, by producing speech generator and other tools to show how arti artificial intelligence uh, works, to look under the bonnet before we regulate. Second is standardization. Stand Geneva is a global capital of standardization, and the standards will be crucial in developing AI and other tools. And third one is uh, development of interplay between nature and digital. We think that interplay, on one side nature, climate change, environment, and digital, will be crucial for the future of humanity. And we discuss it while explaining visit to Jardin Botanique. I'd love to do that. Jovan, thanks so much for being very patient with me today and explaining such complicated matters in ways that I could understand. Good luck with your projects. My guest today has been Professor Jovan Kubalia, Director of Diplo Foundation and Head of the Geneva Internet Platform. Jovan, thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. It was great, and I'm looking forward to, for a walk with you and your listeners in Jardin Botanique. In the spring. In the spring, definitely, <laughs> yeah, when weather is nicer. Exactly. That was The McKay Interview with Michael McKay. And don't forget, you can hear that interview again on our website, worldradio.ch.